Do we even want more integration between our health and the applications that we provide it to, both on like a, a privacy point, but also on a you know life point? Like, don't we want to just sort of live a little bit rather than trying to analyze everything? Welcome back to Evolving, the podcast designed to help you strive, thrive, and optimize. I'm your host, Nita Jane, and today I'm talking to Charlie Rogers, a writer, coach, consultant, and Ironman athlete. He empowers individuals to create organizations of the future and also writes the Mastery in Your 20s newsletter on Substack, designed for high achievers wanting to accelerate their growth. Charlie, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me there. Really excited to talk to you today and to explain everything about, you know, living like an Iron Man, but also riding along the way. Absolutely. Talk to us a little bit about your Ironman journey and how you first got started. Yeah, so I've been doing running as one of the three disciplines in an Ironman, because it's a triathlon, of course. Since I was about 14, when I first joined, I was the worst one there back in my club. And for me, it was really just a way of keeping fit at the beginning, but I just kept turning up. And my coach at the time saw potential in me and asked like, oh, do you want to come along and do a race? And I thought, ah, a race? Cool, why not? And so I did that first race back when I was 14, 15, and I quite enjoyed it. So I kept doing more of it. I kept turning up to sessions. And I kept getting better and better. And I saw by the time I left school, I was vice captain of the club there. And I went on to go to Loughborough University for four years afterwards, which was quite a big sporting university. And so I did four years there. And throughout my time, I managed in my first year to, uh, to collapse a running race, which is quite a big pivotal moment in that journey. And... What that meant to me at the time was this 500 meters in the end and I just happened to collapse. I was like, whoa, okay, what's going on? Next thing I remember, wake up, back of an ambulance and I just sat there in a classic Charlie style and thought, kind of cool. Never been back in ambulance before. <laughs> and then I basically got the diagnosis. I was on the cardiac ward for 13 days and they did everything they could. They went through everything and it came back clear. Like they had nothing that they could observe in terms of medically wrong with me. Um, the 13 days speaks more for NHS than anything else. They guys are awesome, but a bit inefficient. And then afterwards, I basically started trying to get back into running and I get some pain in my neck and my chest. And so I started cutting things from my diet. And one of the things that I cut was caffeine. And I found that that made a huge difference. I, I didn't get any pain in my neck anymore. And so I saw with my new routine, my new habits, myself getting better and better at my running. By the time I left university in that final year, 2020 with COVID, I managed to train quite a lot during the lockdown and get a 14, 49, 5K and a 31, 40, 10K. So there were pretty good times. I came top 10 in the half marathon distance as well with 71, 14 that year for my age group. And then I took a year at home afterwards to build my second business at the time. And I started getting high heart rates on my rare runs again. And so when it came to about April, 2021, I went to go see a cardiologist in Bristol and he said to me, look, hey, you know, this isn't a technical problem. This isn't a physical problem that you have. The one that you actually have is more psychological and you're putting so much pressure on yourself. It's raising your heart rate. And I was like, well, okay, I'm a pretty chill guy. Like I think I was you know, pretty calm in races, but apparently not. And so I took the next like four or five months afterwards to you just turn it down, take the sport very chill to enjoy running for the sake of running rather than competing. And I saw the heart rate come down. Obviously I was also training less. That could be part of it. Uh, but I came to August 2021 and got COVID when I was up traveling in Edinburgh. And as I sat there in, in COVID, you know, the things we do, 10 days of isolation and thought to myself, oh, hey, you know, you know what I want to do? I've got an Ironman that's been on my to-do list for about you know, three, five years. And it's on this goal that's quite far away, but let's make it more tangible. And so I signed up for the Ironman UK for July 
2022. And then when I got to London end of September, I started training with that for the next 12 months. And I got to, to May of this year and went out to Mallorca with the triathlon club that I was training with. And I managed to, um, in short, cycle myself off a cliff, which has given me a bit of a, a bent little finger here, which you can see. Um, I was going very fast, 65 kilometers an hour down a hill. Don't recommend. There were switchbacks here, left, right, and center. Because I've been training so, so hard over the winter, my fitness is really, really good. And I hadn't appreciated how fit I was. So when I got switched out from like a very heavy bike into a hard carbon bike, uh, for me, that basically just gave me a lot of speed on the downhill that I didn't appreciate until I, it was a moment too late. And so I went over the cliff and 10 foot drop and managed to scratch up my arms, which maybe you can see on camera right here. I've got some, some lovely scars, on my right arm. And I've also got a couple of injuries in my back that have now healed and the broken finger, which is yeah, pretty much healed. So I'd say that's pretty good. And I came back from the injury after a month and then sort of from June trained pretty hard again and then got to around uh, September time. So a couple months ago and managed to finish and complete the Ironman 70.3 in Weymouth and in that race I actually qualified for world champs for next year which is pretty cool indeed so it's been quite a generous point and I appreciate that was a long answer to a simple question but it's been a very very interesting journey so far and a big part of who I am in my life going forward as well. That's a remarkable recovery that you've made and I imagine that it might be a little challenging getting back into conditioning after having to take a bit of a hiatus to recover it's interesting because we've recently found out a mechanism by which conditioning might happen as well. And maybe this could be applicable to athletes when they're training, but apparently it's not just, it's not just willpower. It's not just motivation, but there's actually biological changes that happen when you start getting back into a physical routine. Apparently there is a protein called piezo one, and that detects mm. changes in blood flow. So exercise of course stimulates blood flow. Piezo one detects this change. And it changes or remodels the vasculature of the endothelium so that, that it's more rich in capillaries, which means that you're bringing more oxygen and more nutrition to the tissue, which means that over time, your muscles will both recover and grow faster. So that's potentially something that maybe sports psychologists could leverage when they're kind of trying to condition athletes at the beginning of the new season and just kind of help for maximizing performance even. Yeah, I mean, definitely like a lot of links between it and so, so interesting stuff in there as well. For me, the biggest part became once I was injured, accepting that reality as like an athlete who has this mindset of being able to do anything. Once I'd had the injury, obviously I knew that week, yeah, that week I was off, cool, I was injured, great. But once I came back from Mallorca and my back was like improving, but you know, not quite great. And I was trying out, I still had this race that was in the diary and had 45 days from before that to defer it to the following year. And so I got about 50 days out, which is probably only a week and a half after the accident or two weeks. And I was thinking that, oh, you know, I still want to do it. I still think I can like compete and do really well. But when I went out for a run and tried it, I was like, oh, this back hurts way too much. And so I had to think there and then for the next like seven weeks, would I get fit enough to do this race? And the question I asked myself in that moment was, that's not really the point. Do I want to just finish and cross a, cross a finish line or would I rather give it my best shot. And so I decided that I'd rather give my best shot and deferred it to next year because part of me was shying away from the bigger challenge of moving up an age group and competing in a harder discipline the year after, but also committing to another 12 months of training as well. So for me in that moment, like stepping away from this, being able to take the bigger picture was a pretty big one. I remember just sort of standing there next to the computer and just hitting like defer 
And I was like, wow, okay. You know, that's the, uh, the one big goal that I've focused a lot of my life around the last 12 months. And I've just hit deferring it for a year, but actually relief was afterwards. Yeah. It sounds like that year of extra time really did help a lot in terms of making sure that you're not just physically, but also mentally prepared for what's to yeah. come. So we all know how important physical exercise is as far as keeping our brains firing on all cylinders, keeping our blood vessels healthy, protecting against cognitive decline, and contributing to healthy longevity. But for most of us, the modern Western lifestyle isn't exactly conducive to physical activity. A lot of us get up in the morning, step into a car, sit in an office chair for over eight hours sometimes, drive back home and then flunk ourselves onto a couch or sofa. And it seems that a few dedicated hours in the gym aren't necessarily going to be able to reverse all of that. So how could we potentially incorporate more exercise into our daily lives? Great question. And one, I think a lot of people are struggling with now more than ever, especially with remote working. Living from home means the onus is on you, the individual, to put in the reps, to go and implement it into part of your diary. And especially when, you know, you have the benefits of not having to commute somewhere where commuting might've before been a great way to get exercise, a great way to walk somewhere or a great way to you know move about. Now, if you're just turning up, opening the laptop and being on the screen, it becomes even more on yourself to get out there and to, to really put the effort in. And for me, like a big part of it that I find is committing to a training schedule, committing to a goal that you have, because once I sign up for something, I then realize, oh, wow, I've actually got to do it. You know, I've actually got to go out there and put the reps in, put the effort in. And so I think the accountability is perhaps one of the biggest parts. I mean, you can have accountability for the gym and you can use that for kind of as part of your life. And yes, that's only one dimension within it, but around it as well. If you think about the smaller wins of, oh, is there a long way around rather than taking the car or the bus? Like I just went there. I always think that perhaps the most efficient way of doing things isn't the one that's going to be most beneficial to you. And you can both use that on a physical sense in terms of being able to improve your fitness and keep it you know, moving about, but also on a mental sense as well. Of, is there a longer way to get to where I want to go that is more beautiful than the shorter way? The shorter way could be straight down the street next to all the busy cars, but the longer way could be around the riverside taking the views as well. So have a think about that with some of the decisions you make in terms of where you get between places and are there any easy wins you can swap out for? So rather than driving, can you cycle there? Rather than getting the bus, can you walk? But also, I mean, there's some things that I think a lot of health specialists will talk about in terms of you know, every hour standing up. I mean, this watch on my wrist will beep every hour if I don't. I did turn that off because it's pretty annoying, but those sort of little reminders very much help. And I've seen a few leaderboards help people as well in terms of they will count i think they do it a lot on the apple watches apple fitness they have these like huge leaderboards and they'll count the steps that you have each day and that becomes a very like healthy competition dare we say between yourself and your friends and your co-workers as well so there are very much tools out there to do it i think the main thing for myself the main thing i recommend is just being conscious about it and making active choices in your lifestyle as well i love that especially the advice to take the scenic route whenever possible and I do think this somewhat speaks to the importance of having infrastructure that allows for activities like biking and cycling and, and walking and having those sidewalks mm. and to be accessible for people to partake in those activities more fully. Going back to your point about accountability and your use of fitness trackers, what do you think the role of fitness trackers is in keeping us kind of committed to our goals and also perhaps motivating us through gamification? So if I make sure I give myself the preface here, of course, I am like an athlete who trains 15 to 20 hours a week, 
pretty top end in terms of how I use my like technology. So obviously you always bear in mind that perspective, but for me, there's the obvious first use case of it's great for recording workouts. And when I do so much across three disciplines or four or five, it goes instantly to Strava, it goes instantly to the community in which I share my workouts with. And so for me, that's a great way to keep it all in one place. So I can see my training log, I can see where I'm growing and see where my fitness is evolving over time, but I can also interact with my friends, see some cool routes they've been on, get inspired and think about how we can you know, catch up with them in the future as well. So there's obviously that athlete training side for me. And I think that still applies for everyone on a smaller scale in terms of following their friends, sharing their activities, but also this might be an unobvious one. Whenever I go out on say a run is the one that's most common to me with having a a wristwatch here um, that records for me, I haven't got to think about carrying a phone. And that's actually quite a big deal because when you carry a phone, you often think, okay, let's put earphones in, let's put music on and let's train with music. And yes, that can be useful. That can be nice sometimes, but I speak a lot to being present with the time you spend out in nature and being able to actually just be with your thoughts for 40 minutes, an hour, however long you run for is a pretty big part of that. I think the wristwatch enables it because if you were wanting to track your data without having one, you'd be stuck with just having to wear a phone and then it becomes the easy option of putting your earphones in as well. So that's a pretty big one. Also, it tells me how much I slept last night. And so my body battery, it gives me a score on it as well, which can be pretty useful. Often I feel as my body battery is. So I can't tell which one comes first, if it's how I actually slept or how I think I slept looking at my wristwatch, but both seem to be pretty aligned. And I can often know, okay, you know, don't be too hard on yourself today. You know, you had a, a bad night's sleep or if you drank alcohol, you can see the effect it had on you. Wow. You're like, okay, my heart rate was very elevated when I slept last night. Okay. I need to take a nap this afternoon or equivalent. So there's little reminders that it's not so clear as getting eight hours sleep or X, Y, Z sort of physical or health goal that you have. It's actually a lot more complex than that. And I think that's the role that the the wrist watches, the data, like it plays, it helps you see the bigger picture and it helps you not get obsessed with one number because there's so many out there. But of course that could be just as bad of like, where do you want to look for it as well? So I'd say on the positives, use it to record workouts without having to take a phone somewhere to share them online, but also to track your health over time. And you can like zoom out and really big on these like Garmin connect and websites and see your like data over the last year or two years. And if you are tracking all of it, you can see how your like resting heart rate comes down from doing exercise and you can see the benefits to yourself as well. But I would say beware of the too much information can become overwhelming. And so use it in, definitely use it with that knowledge. And for me recently, when I took time off, I went to this really cool place called Unplugged in the UK where they had these cabins where you go and detox from social media in life. And I did three days there. I took my wristwatch off perhaps the first time and not knowing the time in general, but I think also not wearing a wristwatch that tracks all of my data was super, super useful because it enabled me just to be there in the moment and not have to constantly look down at like, oh, what's my heart rate? Oh, how did I sleep last night? It's like, no, okay, just, you know, just live life. So I'd say both sides of it of use it, but don't obsess over it. I love that. I mean, especially the importance of being present and being able to embrace solitude, especially when you went on your retreat. And that kind of got me thinking about Henry David Thoreau when he went out to Walden Pond and he wanted to live deeply and suck out all the marrow of life and kind of avoid getting stuck in a rut. So I do think that stepping away from technology can be beneficial every now and then and 
I think even Blaise Pascal, the famed French mathematician and philosopher, had once said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. So yeah. again, going back to the importance of being able to be alone with our thoughts and just observe, just be mindful. So thank you for that. I do want to talk a little bit about step counts, just because I think that this is something that maybe people perhaps obsess a little too much over. Interestingly, yeah. the original 10,000 step goal has very little scientific backing and was actually part of a marketing ploy for a Japanese pedometer company in the 60s. But lately, research has been kind of coming up against that number and saying that it might not be very accurate. A, a study published in JAMA last year found that 7,000 steps was an important inflection point for middle-aged adults because hitting that number was associated with a reduced chance of premature death by 50 to 70 percent. Another study published in JAMA Internal Medicine in 2019 concluded that older women with a mean age of 72 who walked between 4,400 and 7,500 steps saw a decreased mortality rate. And according to a steps-to-distance conversion chart, walking 4,500 steps a day is about two and a half miles or 3.62 kilometers. And if you were to walk 7,500 steps a day, that's about 3.75 miles or 6.3, 6.03 kilometers. And yet another meta-analysis published in March of this year pooled 15 international cohorts, totaling a little less than 50,000 participants. And they found that mortality plateaus at two different points, 6,000 to 8,000 steps among adults 60 and older, and 8,000 to 10,000 steps among adults younger than 60. So there's just a lot of variation in what might be appropriate, and this could also be very much age-dependent. Interestingly, though, researchers tend to find stronger associations when you have a shorter follow-up time versus a longer follow-up. So I think that kind of speaks to the importance of more recent physical activity being more important for those associations with mortality. And of course, we should remember that all of this data is correlational, and there could be a healthy user bias whereby people who are already healthy are more likely to walk more steps. So perhaps the moral here is don't get hung up on numbers, just get moving. But that being said, what is the typical step count when someone is training for something like an Ironman event? What does that look like? So with an Ironman event, my typical week, presume I like to think in weeks rather than days, is I do four runs a week. I do four swims and I do three cycles a week. So it's about 10 different activities at least. And maybe also a gym session on there as well. So about 11. I often, and I'm not sure if this is the case for everyone, but because my actual work is quite remote and like most people um, is on my computer, I often have to switch quite quickly from, okay, I'm sat down doing work into, okay, I will cycle to the gym or I will go out for a run. And I often go from quite high intensity to very low intensity. And there's not that much walking between unless I intentionally put it in my day because I'm working from home. I don't have to walk anywhere. And so for myself, like the step count varies a lot depending on if I run or if I don't run each day. But my watch will like to, to describe to have to have like 15,000 steps or something. It like determines it based upon like what you put in before and your averages. So I assume my average is around that because I think it just changes depending on what I've done in the last few months or so. But yeah, it definitely varies a lot. And remember, like there's different forms of movement and a step isn't like a, a stroke or a, a swim or like a, a leg turn on a site on like a bike. And so there's often many different ways of counting fitness. And I think the one with with step counts and even the data you showed there, which is super useful, super um super enlightening, it's always interesting to remember as well that like mortality is the aim to live for longer. Like I guess for most people it might it might be, but is the aim to live better 
the longer. That's probably the true aim for most people as well. And I think to ask yourself as well is on the other side of exercise, like I've just almost shown with my finger here is the, the risk of doing damage to yourself by pushing yourself so hard. I'm not saying doing 40,000 steps will do that to you, but with sport, you can obviously do quote too much of it, but it depends a lot on what kind of life you want to live. And for me, often in my head is the idea of like, I'd rather push my body to the extremes when I'm younger. And if it is tired by the time I get older, cool. I know I've used it. And I think for myself, that's pretty, maybe a different way of seeing things, but for myself, I think that's the way I've always approached it. And I think you'll probably find that's pretty similar to other athletes as well as that mindset of, you know, just make the most of it and see what's possible and push it to its limits. And if that means breaking a bone or two to get there, cool. Like as long as it's not any super long-term damage that's going to stop you doing the things you love, then yeah, I mean, it's just part of the journey, really. I appreciate you differentiating between health span and lifespan because I think most of us, we do want to live longer, but we want to still have autonomy into those subsequent decades of life. And I do think that there is a lot of benefit in gaining more muscle during your 20s and 30s because I was speaking to Avisha Nesaver of Distilled Science the other week, and he was describing how people tend to lose about 1% of their muscle mass every year after the age of 50, and it's much easier to maintain than it is to put on as you get older. So accumulating as much as you can in your 20s and 30s can really be beneficial just in terms of continuing to have that functionality into older age. So I do think that that's a good approach to take to kind of treat exercise as this hormetic stressor whereby pushing our limits can actually confer benefits just as long as we're not doing damage that's potentially permanent and irreversible. And even with that, I remember when I had my injury this time around and I went to see the hand therapists, they told me like, hey, you know, with the muscles here in your finger, like I've got full range of movement with it, but they told me if I was 10 years older, if I was in my thirties, the chance of me actually having a full range of movement was it's like completely different. And even that seems like such a close age, but it gets to a point where muscle grows back slower than it replenishes itself, which I found amazing. I was like, wow, okay. At the point in which if I do damage to muscle, I'm doing permanent damage to it. And that's kind of a scary point in life. And it seems very early to have it in your like mid thirties in terms of being told that as well. Agreed. Yeah. I think it's kind of surprising how soon we start to lose elasticity. It's strange because for individuals who have hypermobility issues, that actually ends up resolving a lot of their problems. So a lot of people like myself, I have something called Ehlers-Danlos and I actually have too much of a range of movement because of a deficit in collagen production. And the natural stiffening that happens with age means that I'll be in less pain from that. But then, of course, the challenge is just making sure that the ligaments can support the putting on of muscle. And, of course, there's ways to safely work out, but I guess it requires a little bit of maneuvering to figure out where that safe spot is. So speaking of the relationship between stressing and rest, how do you track your sleep and what sort of numbers do you look for to ensure that you have gotten a decent night of rest and that you're able to train properly the next day. So I have recently just added this to the catalog of trackers that I have on my main watch. There's often all these things that you can go in, like by pressing multiple buttons, get very, very deep into it. But the one that I just added just tells me a score. So a score out of a hundred, and then it gives me a quality number. So I think it goes from like poor to fair to good to excellent. The last night got seven hours, 20, 42 minutes of sleep. The score is 94 and the quality is excellent. And it says below very good recovery. 
I give it a click, it will tell me exactly how much time I spent in deep, light, REM, and awake. And I think last night was particularly good because there was zero minutes awake. That's not normally like that. I think I was just very tired last night after doing quite a lot of exercise. But I think in terms of how I use this data, I don't use it to inform the training. The training is just in a plan. And I will do it almost regardless of how I feel, unless something comes up that I actually can't manage. So if there's something which is a injury, like a ligament or like a muscle, like cool, obviously I'm going to hold back on that. But if it's sleep, no, no, you just get through it. And so I think that might be an interesting way to frame training in a different way. But because these plans are set up weeks in advance, it becomes difficult to adapt it based upon a difference in sleep. I'll obviously be wary of it going into a session, but I won't necessarily change the session because of it but for me having that there is a useful reminder of okay i know i'm going to need like a couple of hours nap in the afternoon or i'm going to have to change my day around a little bit and i think that becomes the way that i manage it instead is that i take the pressure off myself from having to like get through a bunch of tasks in my work day or having to smash out certain parts of a session instead it's like okay you can do, still do the session maybe slightly lower intensity but also remember like you're going to come back from this you're going to feel tired and then you know, if you have a sleep, that's fine. If your heart rate's elevated in the runs, this is probably why. So that's okay as well. Gotcha. And generally speaking, do you tend to rely more on how you feel as in whether you're refreshed in the morning or do you find that the numbers on your tracking device give you more insight or do you think that they kind of sync up pretty well? Like when your data reports that you had a good night's sleep, you also feel refreshed in the morning? Yeah, I'd say on the whole, it's very correlated. And I think the two of them are hand in hand in terms of if I feel well, it almost informs it as well. And I can recently have signed up for this thing called Training Peaks with a coach that I've got, and it will input all of my sleeping data and all of my like body battery data and all my heart rate data into that as well. So my now coach can see it and he can basically, the logic goes anyway, that you can make informed decisions based upon that as well, which is kind of interesting. I'd never actually seen it in that way before of a coach seeing your data, but that's perhaps another direction that this health stats could take is that it could become even more about the relationship between yourself and the person setting you a plan as an athlete, but it could also become about yourself. And we've seen a lot of a rise of insurance being based on number of steps. Very interesting. And a lot of other companies using that data in different ways. So instead of it just being about the individual, there's also a big potential here that the data, if used correctly, should we say, uh, obviously we say steps is a bit of arbitrary count. How can it become used by other providers in the space to help you make more informed decisions, maybe about what you eat, but maybe also about when you eat and who you perhaps spend time with and where you spend time with as well. It could be a very interesting one to sort of use the calorie, calorie numbers you get on your watch to inform your eating decisions. Absolutely. Do you think that there's any chance that the information could be used in a discriminatory manner by insurance companies or that there might even be privacy concerns for some people? Yeah, I mean, definitely. <laughs> there's always concerns when there's data involved and especially when it's health data, which is normally pretty confidential. So using it in, in this way would have to be very, you know, GDPR friendly in the UK, but also ab abiding by every data protection right elsewhere as well. But on a general trend, you could use this in a pretty interesting way to sort of measure improvements or perhaps small changes you've made in someone's lifestyle. So say we take the big app of Strava and if they adopted a new notification that perhaps pushed people or reminded them each day to run, they maybe could measure the impact of that and see if that's made a difference. Obviously, all other factors being consistent, which would never be the case, 
you might be able to see a bit of difference in some of the, say, patients, customers that you have and seeing if any of your actions make tangible results as well. Because right now the feedback you get is often user input of like, yeah, I feel better. Yeah, I run more. Yeah, I do this on a scale of one to five. But what if you actually saw it on them? It could be pretty interesting as well. Definitely. And I think one of the issues that's kind of preventing this from being adopted into prime time and integrated with insurance and other systems is the fact that these fitness trackers have a lot of limitations in terms of their accuracy. There was this one study where researchers had looked at Apple Watch, Fitbit, and Polar Advantage, and the energy expenditure values could be off by up to 30%. So I feel like there are some limitations as far as making this more integrated as far as evaluating a person's risk of disease for the, the purpose of health insurance. Mm. But what else do you think are current limitations to using health tech and embracing it more fully? So there's definitely some interesting things in the pipeline, which I believe might be holding back the adoption where, say I have like a heart rate monitor that I'll wear on my cycles because I don't use my wristwatch to monitor data on my cycles. I instead have a computer that I'll put the front of my bike and then I'll have this basically strap that goes around my chest that's a lot more accurate in terms of the data that it provides which is often quite different from my wristwatch like you say up to 30% difference and I think as the watches get better if they can improve even more on what sort of data they're outputting that can be pretty interesting there's also some pretty interesting stuff on like sweat there's some sweat monitors that are being incorporated into wristwatches as well and seeing the way that they get included, the way that they also compound because sweat you can often use to rehydrate and that can become a very important part of an athlete's rehydration strategy as well. So being able to incorporate more features could be more useful, but again, it could just be more useless data and going on feel is perhaps a better way as well. But in terms of the wider adoption by individuals, I think there's partly it's a, a habit thing and partly it's a price thing. Like right now these are expensive. This one on my wrist costs just under 500 pounds. I first bought it a couple of years ago or got it from a present. And that's kind of out of the range of a lot of people. And obviously on athletes, I'm going to make that investment myself because I use it every day or multiple times a day. But for those that are just getting started with fitness or those that want to get into it, it's sort of having to choose between using your phone in a very uncomfortable way to track everything or investing in something like a watch, which can cost hundreds of pounds to do that. And I think that's probably the first limitation of adoption is weighing up the costs of reliability. So maybe you can buy a cheaper Fitbit, but is that going to be very accurate for you? Is that what you want versus actually one that you can afford as well at the same time? So re reliability and affordance, but like there's nothing hitting that middle market right now. People who aren't sure if they want to get into sports. I think that's the hardest part is before you know you want to make it part of your routine. And only once you already do it a few times a week, does it become even a choice to buy a wristwatch or equivalent as well. So that's the first one I'd say was the technology behind it in terms of an athlete point of view, like it could become even more from there as well. And then thirdly would be sort of what to do with the data. Like, yes, it's cool. It's useful. I can look at how I've progressed, but how does that inform decisions I make on a daily basis? And like we talked about before, there are some integrations that are possible, but they're not yet realized. And I think once that becomes more involved, that could become even more of a draw of it as well. But the question becomes, do we want that? Do we even want more integration between our health and the applications that we provide it to, both on like a, a privacy point, but also on a you know, life 
point? Like, don't we want to just sort of live a little bit rather than trying to analyze everything? I don't know. I mean, there's sides to both of it. And I think having the option there is powerful, but also knowing when to switch off, just like your phone can go into do not disturb mode or go into like digital like time when you can sort of turn it off from social media. Could your watch do a similar thing where you could just completely turn off or just not use it and not feel guilty? Like I feel bad whenever I take it off because I'm just trying to track all the data. So how do I charge it for an hour and not feel like I'm missing data on it? So I think that kind of mindset approach might be pretty powerful as well. Definitely. I think the point of what to do with the data, that is a question because I think in the era of big data, we are collecting more than we know what to do with at times. But I think the quantified self movement was sort of born out of that similar idea that we can track all of this health data, but how do we make sense of it? And I feel like that international community is really quite useful for people who are wanting to answer questions. But a lot of this technology can be useful from a self-experimentation point of view, kind of figuring out if I eat this way before bed or if I fast for longer, does that improve my sleep quality? Just doing all of these little N of one experiments just because there is a lot of variation in how we Mm -hmm. respond to certain things. So sometimes looking at literature, it might not give you the best indication of how you specifically will respond because You're a unique individual, you have unique ancestry, unique genetic composition, a unique microbiome composition, and all of that informs how you will react to something. So I think there is a case for doing safe self-experimentation. And I think the quantified self movement has been really instrumental in allowing people to share health data and share the experiments that they're conducting and kind of paving the way for other people to do the same. Yeah, it's a very interesting one that because part of my brain there goes before there's quite a lot of pseudoscience on nutrition, on fasting, on ways of living in terms of this thing works for me. Will it work for you? I don't know, but here's my advice online. You have to pay for a bank. Like there's a lot of stuff on nutrition that's very vague out there. And from my understanding of the research, it's also very inconclusive, which means it's even harder to know what actually works. But with this data, my question will become rather than us saying, if we feel good, would it be instead, oh, look, this number's gone up by a little bit, so I must be better instead. So instead of using your feel, you would instead say as the answer, hey, look, my body battery is up slightly higher, so I must have, must be this one thing I changed about my nutrition instead. Do we just shift the blame or shift the results or evidence? I think there is a case for using both intuition, but also being data-driven in our decisions. I think the feedback that you get from your body is invaluable because we do have this sense of introception whereby we're able to sort of perceive the things that are going on in our bodies. Like when your stomach is growling, it's signaling hunger. And that's an example of introception. And also like a lot of people who are really quite in tune, they're able to accurately predict their heart rate at any given moment. So I guess the more in tune you are, the better able you are to predict certain numbers about yourself. But I think there is also a case for using data instead, especially when it comes to things like like carbon monoxide, for example, because the thing is, when it comes to our breathing pattern, we sense changes in CO2 levels, not oxygen. And that is what Mm -hmm. causes us to hyperventilate or to change our breathing pattern. The problem then with something like carbon monoxide is that it changes your oxygen levels without affecting CO2. So if you are experiencing poisoning, you will feel fine until you drop dead unexpectedly. So I guess that's an example where having the data is really necessary and having, of course, carbon monoxide detectors is necessary in order to stay safe. But I think there's 
there's cases for both and probably integrating the two and figuring out the percentages in which you should rely on either is is kind of the sticking point potentially yeah and even just right now whenever i input the data you'll see my heart rate on an activity but you'll also see me input one to five how do you feel or a one to ten how do you feel and then comments below with my coach as well so he'll have to ask me because even say recently on my runs getting back to fitness the heart rate's high and it should be on the run but I talk about it like hey look like i actually feel fine and i'm going at the speed that we suggested but the data here shows that it's higher than usual it could be a wristwatch problem it could be a, a me problem over training i'm not sure which one it is so even there there's like doubt of like do i allow this data to inform a decision or do i question the reliability of the data to begin with as well that's a great point. Yeah, I think it can introduce some confusion as to what to do when the numbers aren't lining up with expectation, but you're feeling fine. And I guess that's something that coaches and athletes would have to figure out on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, I mean, that's all you can do, isn't it? And just learn from the, the evidence that you, you find. And I think the feel would take precedent for now until the wearables become even more accurate. But until then, I think it's all about sort of feel and does the feel match the data? If it doesn't, okay, what's, tell me a bit more about it. Like, do you actually feel that way or are you just masking it? Or even with our own brains as athletes, you're trying to just push through to the next thing. Like, it's hard to know if you're consciously making a choice or subconsciously making one as well. And like I mentioned from the start, of when I saw that cardiologist in Bristol, he told me that the heart rate's too high in the runs because you're putting pressure on yourself. I didn't feel like I was putting pressure on myself at the time. So it's hard again to like know if I am so in tune with body or if I am like just really good at pushing it beyond its limits and not knowing when to stop. So that's another kind of common cause or common problem that I think a lot of athletes will have as well. I would imagine that would be a conundrum that a lot of people would face. Is this something that I'm just pushing through without knowing it? It's just happening at a subconscious level. And I guess this again speaks to the importance of sports psychology. So knowing that sometimes you have this ability to push past walls without maybe even consciously being aware that you're doing it, how does that inform your mindset going into competitions, going into training? Yeah, so for me, in trainings, it's a pretty interesting one. Like there's a little, there's a few different strategies or tactics that I might apply where in my brain, say if I know I'm doing eight reps, if I get to say the third one, I'm about to do the third one. Then I tell myself after this one, I have four left. So I always think one ahead of the one I'm doing, which makes it so when you get to the last one, like number eight, you're like, wait, after this one, there's none left. Oh, it's just the last one. I'm done. So that little switch helps me overcome the reps each time in training. But also in a race, if I ever feel like, oh, okay, it's not going so well. Like in that most recent Ironman race, I had the, the worst stomach cramp on the run. That's a pretty standard thing, apparently, in, in triathlon. But I came out of the cycle feeling good, through the transition, went into the run, and was like, okay, I've got a 71-minute half marathon. Like, I can probably do a sub-80. And I just saw my time. If you're looking on Strava, it just dipped massively. But when it was dipping, for me, what kept me going was like, okay, next corner, and then you think about it. Next corner, and then you think about it. Like, it's, if you're slowed down, cool, but you don't stop running and you keep going because it will feel better over time. You just have to work, work way through it. And there's obviously some things about like raising your arm in the air if you've got a stitch or pulling out the, the physical skin next to it. But 
as I was moving, the mindset here is just keep going and use little markers to, you know, I'll think about it once I've done extra K or I'll think about it then keep delaying the gratification until you cross the line. And then you're like, okay, you know, that's, that's time to think about it now and reflect on, on a journey as well, because it always is worth it. And I think the more that you teach yourself how it feels to cross a line in a sport or in a discipline, but also to push through a hard session or turn up on a tough day afterwards, you're like, yeah, that was hard, but I did it. And I think the more you remember the feeling afterwards, the easier it is to begin as well. And there's some easier wins that I do of trying to set up my train that before. So to have like a swim session riding out the night before or leaving my trains by the door or putting sports clothes out that I can literally just get changed into when I wake up. Those kind of easy wins are trying to simplify the habit of going out and getting the hard thing done. But whenever I do it in the morning, I try and do my sport in the morning, is that I come back in and I'm like, oh, you know, it's already a good day. I've already done the hardest thing of today and now everything else is easy. And I think that's the, the mindset I try and have to everything else as well. I love that. Do you have any specific advice for pushing past your lactate threshold? Because I feel like that's a potential obstacle that's kind of difficult to overcome when you first run up against it, pun intended. <laughs> so I'd say as with perhaps anything here, the always running quote that sticks in my head is train hard, race easy. So the lactate threshold problem that you're facing is going to be something that could be solved months, weeks before on the training ground. So pushing, doing the VO2 max sessions, doing the, the speed sessions. That's where I'd often see the biggest results, but also remembering that like, once you tap on the day, like you've done the hard work and that the day itself, it's like on a sort of spectrum of experience, I try and collate the number of hours spent on training versus the number of hours of racing. <laughs> number of hours of training is what, like 99% of the time, number of hours of racing is like 1% of the time. And it's that kind of stat that always zooms out and be like, okay, you know, you train so much, so much time invested so you can do this thing. And so when it gets to those moments of like, oh, okay, this is tough. Like, let's keep going. The mindset wise is like, okay, you know, put the effort in, you might as well see it through. But physically wise, there's also, you know, sports drinks, electrolytes, that kind of stuff is going to be super helpful. But I think the biggest benefit you'll find in terms of lactate will come from pushing yourself on VO2 max sessions before the day and being able to extend your fitness before you race itself as well. So when you train, do you prefer to train in a fasted state or do you protein load in advance? Because I think that this is something that there is potentially a bit of a gender disparity about because the common advice is that working out in a fasted state may confer some, some benefits, but this can sometimes backfire in women because it blunts fat oxidation. But if you consume adequate protein, Instead of carbohydrates prior to a workout, that can help women see more improvements in strength and lean body mass compared to post-exercise nutrition. But again, there is a bit of a sex disparity when it comes to this advice. But what do you feel works best for you? So I think the key learning here is that I feel like I'm just to eater. So it's more a matter of training on it. And it becomes a similar thing in races of training with the nutrition you intend to race with is a big part so that you can avoid the stomach cramp on the day so you can get the carbs in that you need. And nutrition for me has only become like more of a thing I think about since transitioning to Ironmans because on a shorter distance triathlon or even on just running of anything less than a half marathon, 
you could do you could do nutrition on like a half marathon more than 90 minutes but anything less than 90 minutes it, you don't really need it the big thing that i do which probably actually isn't that useful again if it's less than 90 minutes of exercise it's carb loading night before but if you're doing a big race the day afterwards that makes a, a significant difference enough to to do it but on the day itself in the morning i will eat i will not do training fasted often if i do it's only because I intend to do a short run or a short distance or a short amount of exercise. If I know I'm doing quite a ma- quite a big amount, then I will always eat and then wait for it to go down in enough time. But really that actual time it takes is pretty short now. I can probably get eat, finish a meal and get out within probably 20 to 30 minutes, which isn't whatever everyone can do. I used to be like an hour, hour and a half, two hours, but I think the more I've done it, the easier it's become. I think it's also about what you eat as well. There are some things that sit a lot better with the stomach in terms of things like a banana, things that don't become too weighty. But for myself, I take a more loose approach to it in terms of the pre-training nutrition. And I'll just eat what I normally eat, give myself about half an hour and off we go. But that's definitely not for everyone. And I know that there are other ways of doing it, which become sort of eat a small amount, do the exercise, eat a lot afterwards, or even the nutrition on the sport itself. But I'd say it's only really relevant, I've found, for any exercise you do this nine minutes or more. No, but your experiences are invaluable just because the training that you do and the extent to which you're pushing your body, that's very rare. So I feel like it's very much providing the heavy use test case. <laughs> you know, because everyone's the kind extreme. of fascinated by extremes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, like pushing the body to the limits is something that people always look to. It's kind of an interesting like obsession, isn't it? To see, okay, what does the body do when it's like, sub-zero what does it do when you like become the ice man you don't feel cold anymore like what does it do when you push yourself over an iron distance like what does it do when you do x and y and it's like wow okay you know it's a pretty amazing feat of like engineering biological engineering that the body can like withstand all that much as well and like anything it just takes enough time to get used to it and to absorb that style of training that style of approach because once you get used to something in life wow it's like holy shit, the body can do it. And you can build on top of it again. You've come, okay, 5K, that's easy, man. Or oh, 10K. And it's like the, the mind as well as the physical body is actually getting used to it. And so once your mindset becomes, I can do this, what's next level, next level, next level, next level, you like just build on top of it. So for anyone that feels like, oh, I'm miles apart from where they are right now and they're actually just getting started with fit, their fitness journey or their health journey, know that it just becomes a, a compounding journey. Like once you do, the first thing of maybe going out for like a 1K walk or something. The next thing of like, oh, 1K walk was all right. 2K, let's give it a go. And then you try the next thing and the next thing. And it was only once I was doing like half marathons to a to pretty, pretty good level that I chose to do an Ironman afterwards. Like I wouldn't come zero to Ironman without probably a bit in between. And so always think about it as a compounding journey where you can learn more about your body, about your health. And along that journey, you can discover what the limits are and the limits are probably way beyond what you think they are. Absolutely. Speaking of limits, do you think that we're going to see more sports records being set in the upcoming years as far as Olympics go, as far as pushing the boundary of what is possible? Because I think some people think that there's only so much and we're sort of seeing the peak of what we can do. Do you think that we haven't hit it yet, that there's still other records to be broken? So I'm definitely an optimist. And I'll say there's there's for sure more peaks, more fitness to be achieved. But 
I think a big caveat here is the technology will keep improving. We saw it a lot with, you can track it in swimming. Every time they improve or they bring in like a new swimsuit or a, they make the pool a lot or level so that the, the water runs off into the, the trades below, this times go down. So you can see it every time in, in the sport in terms of the technological impact on sport. And you can see it most recently on the running with someone like, I'll call him out, Elliot Kipchoge, like with those new shoes, Alpha Flies. Before they were invented, there were no regulations on what shoes could contain. And now that they are happy and used, they have carbon fiber plates in the bottom of them, which enable you to like rebound a lot faster. And I think they make about 3% difference to your time, which is incredible. Like that's such a big difference over a marathon distance. And so him wearing that versus not wearing them at all can see the times come down, can see the results improve, but he is, he is one of the most impressive athletes, regardless of the technology, regardless of the shoes. But I think increasingly you see it in the sort of sub communities around the sports people are questioning the use of technology like is it fair to compare like times from 20 years ago to today when the technology is so different and they also often the debate comes in about oh of course he's doping and that's a classic one in any sport here is that people point to drugs people point to using epo i think especially after you know lance the armstrong like that's a pretty big pretty big um, veil over the sport of cycling, should we say, in terms of everything that's gone on with that, which I think has impacted other sports in terms of perceptions of athletes that have just gone from being good to being like the best in the world very quickly. People go, I'm not really sure about that. And they often question athletes as well on that journey, which is a pretty dire place to be, but also it becomes part of the journey. And I think you just have to keep proving it that you're not, not guilty of, of doing it. But also it's an interesting question of like drugs, we all take drugs. Caffeine's a drug, alcohol's a drug. Like we do these things on a regular basis. Like where's the line and which ones are performance enhancing and which ones aren't and how can you decide between them and what's the right amount of each one? And it becomes very much a, a crazy world, especially say in, in women's sport with, with testosterone being like a huge impact and a huge variability there as well, where even those that have high levels of testosterone have to actively reduce it to compete, like, which that's crazy as well. And it becomes like, how do you know where the line is and how can you draw up what a normal human has? Like who even defines that? Yeah, that is something that you can't really define in any appreciable sense because there is so much variability between all of this. And like you're saying, a lot of things we typically consume can also be classified as drugs. And I think also the impact on an individual that's kind of variable as well, because what's performance enhancing for one person might be detrimental in another body, depending on how it's metabolized, depending mm. on their CYP450 liver enzymes, depending on their gut microbiota and those downstream metabolites that are produced. So there is a lot of variability there. For example, soy compounds, and this is not performance related, but just an example of how compounds can, can be different in, depending on the body in which they find themselves. A lot of soy, like the genistin that's found there, it's broken down by specific bacteria that can turn those isoflavones into anti-cancer compounds. And unless you are in possession of those bacteria, which a lot of Asian cultures tend to have, then you're not going to have the cancer protective benefits of consuming soy. So a lot of the time, you know, two people can consume the same thing and it'll be protective in one individual, no effect potentially detrimental in another individual. So I think that's also something to maybe keep in mind. Mm, no, that is super interesting of like the science behind it being different because you often say, oh, my body is so different to yours, but actually like seeing the impact of something so 
everyday use like soy can actually have a huge difference in terms of who, who, cons who consumes it as well, which is very interesting. Definitely. And I think a lot of times athletes will use soy or whey products in order to kind of get more protein in. So that can also be differentially processed depending on the person. So here's another example of personalized nutrition. It turns out that the glycemic index is not the best predictor of how much your blood glucose rises after a specific food. And the microbiome is a much better predictor. And there have been a lot of studies done detailing the microbiome associations, even among twins. So sometimes, you know, identical twins, they can eat the same food in the same proportion. And one might have like a huge spike and the other will continue to have relatively stable postprandial blood glucose. And it seems that differences in the microbiome composition are responsible for that. So as in terms of metabolic effects and, and kind of preventing insulin resistance, that could be something else that athletes potentially incorporate in the future by just kind of figuring out, hey, like this is what's keeping my blood sugar stable. So maybe this is better for me to consume in preparation for a marathon event so that I'm not having those spikes and crashes. I'm not feeling fatigued or feeling like I'm going to lose steam earlier than I should. And I think that maybe there's an argument for continuous glucose monitoring in affecting training as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge amount. And I mean, the one that we measure on right now is carbs. Like anything long distance is all about, you know, right amount of carbs per time of exercise. But like you say, different carbs are absorbed differently by different people. And thinking about the gut microbiome, which is basically like a, the amount of like organisms that exist in the gut is absolutely crazy. So thinking about like everything in there and all how it affects the like, metabolic rate of what you're consuming is very interesting as well. So yeah, I mean, there's definitely potential to include it. It would just be how to efficiently monitor it without affording yourself more things to wear all the time as well. Like this, the classic problem of like, I can buy all these things and I can wear all this stuff, but again, like, okay, how much actual extra use of it give me? And is it better that I go in for like one session with a, an amazing like sports team and they measure myself for, I don't know, an hour in the lab and they tell me this stuff rather than me buying a device instead as well. So that might also be an, an alternative for people is to have these sort of high performance sports labs that you can go into and work out what your averages are. Uh, like you would in the gym, you could stand on those things, which like you hold and they measure your whole body. Maybe a similar one for the sort of top end numbers when you get the VO2 max numbers and stuff like that, which can be pretty interesting as well. Definitely. I think there's a case for maybe spending a couple of weeks figuring out which foods suit you best and then just kind of running with that data rather than continuously tracking it the entire time you're training, because that could obviously get a, a little bit cumbersome having to wear so many devices all the time. Briefly going back to our discussion about mindset, what is the role of sport in your life? So it's an interesting one for myself here because I'm not a pro athlete. I don't get paid to compete. I mean, maybe on a running level, I could win a few races and get a few hundred pounds here or there, but it wouldn't be enough to sustain you know, a full cost of living. But I also take the sport pretty seriously and I invest like 15 to 20 hours a week into the training. So for me, I've now on like a, a personal point of view with my like professional life, have created a situation in which I can do that, but also like get paid for the time that I spend on the business. So I'm my third business now and creating more of what I would describe as a 
like portfolio career of doing different interests. So writing's one of them, coaching's one of them, consulting's another one of them. But those three things are in fact enabling this lifestyle that I have of being an athlete as well. Because without it, without owning my time as a self-employed individual, I'd find it a lot harder to fit it around my schedule and to be able to prioritize races, prioritize um, spending time on the sport as well. So it becomes a bit of a juggling act of being able to dance between the different disciplines. So one moment I have to go into writing mode, which is basically like nothing like this, sitting down, earphones in, typing out. Next moment, it's like on a call with a client and I have to be active, be here, be present, be speaking to them. And then next moment, I'm like thinking complexly about the future of work. How does it work? How does it go? Where's the next direction it's taking? Like, how do I help this company get there? And then the next moment, I have to sort of jump into my cycling gear, go out for a cycle, come back in, and then start the process again. And the biggest part here is, like I say, it's a dance. So it's being able to move between the different parts of life very quickly and effectively. And that's something you only learn by doing it. And it can often get a bit overwhelming when you realize you have like a huge list of things to do. So when you can control stuff, like me writing as a newsletter, rather than writing to get paid by clients, it's a big thing because it means that I can operate on my schedule and I can choose when I write. So I fit it into my days around other things. So I'd say for anyone that is looking at that kind of lifestyle they want, obviously check out the newsletter, but also on a point here would be control a few of the skills or a few of the interest areas that you have so they can fit around other areas of your life. Otherwise there'll be two or three of them competing for the same slot on the same day. And it becomes, wow, okay, that's pretty overwhelming. But the first thing that goes in my diary now is my training. That's literally in my diary. I, I, I book it out weeks at advance, but that goes in my diary. And then I put client calls around it. And then around the client calls, I put the, the writing. So it works a bit like that. And I think that's kind of interesting is that I prioritize the sport before everything else, even though it's not my full-time job and I don't get paid for it, but maybe I will one day. I don't know, but I just love seeing where my body can go and push its limits. So that's how I try and create my life around it. Brilliant. So curating a portfolio career allows you to pursue that passion of yours, that passion for sport. And this is, of course, something that you do talk about in your newsletter mastery in your 20s, and I really love the detailed guides that you've created on your newsletter. How did you first decide that you wanted to offer this resource? So for me, it was back in back in March, March this year. Yeah, it's been like like six, seven months now. And it began because I had this theory that you can't create something meaningful in the world, i.e. a business, i.e. a project, i.e. anything with significant impacts, unless you first master yourself. So what my kind of core belief was that you need to first get in touch with who you are, understand how to sort of control habits, how to understand your mindset, how to build any of these different skills that I talk about in Master Your Twenties. And then on top of that, you can build the business skills that you can then go and create something that's meaningful in the world. So for me, why I do all these things or what enables all these things that I do in my life is because I have these kind of personality traits. I have these common skills that I've developed over time that I thought that, you know, I learned a few, learned a few things about, I thought I could share with people. And so it started last year as a half written book. I wrote 30,000 words. Basically each week I'd sit down and write a thousand words for like 26, 30 weeks. And then at the end of it, I was like, why am I doing this in this way? I'm not getting much feedback. The feedback loop isn't here. And so I kind of dropped it for a few months and then I basically reflected on it. I was like, okay, there's some good content in here, but how can I reformat it in a way that I publish regularly so that I can get feedback from people, build an audience, and then maybe I'll turn those posts into a book the other way around. Okay, cool. Well, let's start with a, start with writing on this 
platform called Substack. What's that? Sounds pretty cool. And my friend had just published on it like a couple of years ago and told me about how great it was. And so I was like, okay, let's do it. And then from there, it's evolved more into, I think you've probably seen my writing style evolve over the last sort of seven months as well, into a more like, okay, the guide's approach, which is do this, do that to master the skill. Or obviously there's also the analogies that I love to use, which are like, hey, look, if you think about it in this way, it's often looks like that as well. But I also try and give a reflection on sort of the life that I'm living, the individuals, my diaries, but also discussions on where the, the career is moving, but also where life's moving. So when I try and describe it as a use that often covers a lot of things, but I'd say it's for people who want to accelerate their 20s, although I know a lot of people that read it in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s as well. But, you know, there we go. I try and be useful to a lot of people and I just try and share what I'm interested in. I do think that the advice you share is evergreen and applicable to people, not just in their 20s, but in other decades as well. And I love that approach to kind of get active feedback. That reminds me of a book called How to Blog a Book by Nina Amir, where she kind of talks about releasing one chapter at a time. And, and then you're kind of like creating a living document with your readership, with your audience, because you're getting that real-time feedback and figuring out what people's pain points are, and then you're better able to address them rather than just kind of writing into the void, not sure if, what if your work is resonating or not. But I think that the takeaway that we're getting from you is that self-knowledge is the key to unlocking success in our lives. And I really love that you distill how we can know ourselves more thoroughly and not just know ourselves, but improve aspects of ourselves that maybe could be fortified in some way. So thank you for that. Let our audience know where they can find you online and how to get in touch if they have any questions about self-improvement, career advice, or training for an Ironman competition. The productivity of self-improvement stuff, it's useful. And the stuff that I write in there is 100% like valuable and I try and give as much as I can. But it's also like a pinch of salt, you know, like life's cool, life's beautiful, like try and live it as well. And I think that's also one of the core messages that I try and give people is that it's not also about living productive life that achieves x y and z result it's also about just being as well but if you're here for this sort of mix of self-improvement but also spirituality and something in between and careers and you know doing cool shit then for myself like you can find a lot of stuff that i publish on on linkedin charlie rogers on there some eight thousand plus people follow me on there which is kind of cool and then you can follow the newsletter of course on on substack so mastering a 20 substack in google i'm sure you'll find it or i'm sure you will link to it below uh and then anywhere else strava if you want some cool runs and great routes and some inspiration and then goodreads is perhaps where i keep one of the cool books that i get through if you want book number 25 this year excitement what's the last thing you read the last thing i mentioned the last thing i'm reading right now the last thing i'm reading right now is the the dawn of everything which is literally right here and it's an incredible book about pretty much the dawn of humanity and how we assume that we've evolved from tribalistic individuals who have, you know, been very feral in the way they've gone about in a nomadic lifestyle. But actually looking back, this or these historians is written by two people. All the context is we. I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Um, in the book, they basically bust all the myths about uh, where we came from and they describe a lot of of native american but um, any native societies and how actually they're a lot more complex than we assume we assume they're primitive and that they don't have a lot of complexity but for an example he gives one of a society that would come together every six months under a more sort of authoritarian rule and then for the other six months they disperse into tribes and be more nomadic so they kind of flip between two different states and that's really really interesting and there's also some other examples of like mesoamerican tribes who use like a a very form of democracy to make decisions without an authoritarian power. And we often see this like 
okay, we've obviously reached where we are today by progressing this way, but actually a book like that helps unwrite those common uh, thoughts that we have about progression and linear improvement. But actually often there's multiple paths and the one we're on right now hasn't got to be inevitable. I love a good origin story, especially one that's dispelling a lot of the anthropomorphic myths that we might hold about being more advanced or more civilized when really, I think we could learn from from hunter-gatherer tribes that are still in existence today, as well as cultures that came before us. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you for having me, dear. Definitely. Mastery in Your 20s is a Substack newsletter written by Charlie Rogers, and we will be linking to that in the show notes. Charlie, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, Nida. It's been awesome and great chatting with you too. You can find the show notes for this and all other episodes at the Substack URL linked in the show description. You can also review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or Podchaser. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.